Tonight, our intention is to cover Job chapters 8, 9, and 10. We're, we're sort of dealing with the second person in this dialogue that goes between Job and his three friends. Again, we can give a, just a very brief recap of the book of Job. The first two chapters consider this man Job and sort of the heavenly argument that went on about him between God and Satan, where essentially Satan believed that if Job's blessings were taken away and if crisis was brought into his life, Job would curse God. And God, defending Job and defending his own honor, said, no, my servant Job serves me for godly reasons and not just for the blessings that he has. And so God allowed Satan to bring great catastrophe, incredible crisis into Job's life. He lost all his wealth. He lost his 10 adult children. His relationship with his wife soured. He developed a terrible, painful disease that afflicted his entire body. And then he had some friends who came and were there to comfort him and listen to him. They sat in absolute silence with Job, just there, you know, in comradeship, you could say, with him in the midst of his suffering for seven days. And then finally, we saw in Job chapter 12, at the end of those seven days, Job spoke. But he didn't just speak, he, he wailed. He, he ranted, he raved about this great catastrophe that had come into his life. And in a passage, a chapter that was both poetic and, and powerful, Job spoke with incredible eloquence about how he just wished he was dead, how he wished he had never been born, or if he had been born, he wished he would have just died a few days after his birth. And he's just giving vent, we might say, to the great despair within his own heart. Well, this emotional outpouring of despair brought a response from one of Job's friends, this gentleman named Eliphaz that we studied last week. And Eliphaz basically told Job that he should calm down and consider that God is righteous and, and just sort of bring his complaint before God and repent. And Job answered back to him in the following chapters that, that he was right before God and that Eliphaz didn't understand the situation at all. Well, Eliphaz is done speaking uh, until we meet up with him again in a few other chapters. Job finished his response to Eliphaz. Now we have the second of Job's three friends who's going to speak here in Job chapter 8, a gentleman named Bildad. So let's start here, verses 1 through 7 of Job chapter 8. Then Bildad the Shuahite answered and said, How long will you speak these things, and the words of your mouth be like a strong wind? Does God subvert judgment, or does the Almighty pervert justice? If your sons have sinned against him, if he has cast them away for their transgression, if you would earnestly seek God and make your supplication to the Almighty, if you were pure and upright, surely now he would awake for you and prosper your rightful dwelling place. Though your beginning was small, yet your latter end would increase abundantly. Bildad here now rebukes Job for Job's prior rebuke of Eliphaz. Let's remember sort of the chain of events here, right? Job complains in chapter 3. Eliphaz responds in chapters 4 and 5. In chapter 6 and 7, Job responds to Eliphaz. And now here, Bildad is responding to Job's prior response. And some of these things apparently are more evident in the original Hebrew and sort of the, the character and the flavor of it. But, but Bildad seems to come off, again, according to the commentators, I don't read this in the original Hebrew, I can't catch the nuance of the original language, but according to the commentators, 
Bildad comes off somewhat of as a pompous windbag, just sort of a man who likes to make great big speeches and use a lot of fancy words. He, he, he speaks as a refined member of the group, Eliphaz did, rather, I should say. But Bildad sort of comes off as sort of a, a legalist, a harsh man, a man who speaks very strictly and very sternly. Bildad was very quick to rebuke Job for his strong words. Again, how long will you speak these things and the words of your mouth be like a strong wind? Very quick to rebuke Job for his strong words. But he didn't stop to consider why Job spoke this way. He heard Job's words, but I don't think he was really considering Job's pain. But listen to the essence of his argument here in verse 3. He says, does the Almighty pervert justice? But Bildad has absolute confidence in the justice of God. And in his application of the principle of the justice of God, he says, therefore, Job, you deserve what has come upon you. And Bildad was brash enough or rude enough to throw the death of Job's sons before his face. Did you see what it says there in verse 4? If your sons have sinned against him, he's cast them away for their transgressions. Listen, the, the bodies of Job's children are barely cold in the grave. And Bildad is saying, well, they deserved it. They must have been notorious sinners. That's why this has come upon them. Job's children must have sinned as well as Job must have sinned. And then look at his advice there in verse 5. If you would earnestly seek God, if you were pure and upright, well, surely now he would awake for you. You see, Bildad was like everyone else in this drama, unable to see behind that curtain that seemed to separate the heavenly scene from the earthly scene. Therefore, Bildad's only way of interpreting Job's situation was to apply the principle of cause and effect. Job, you're in this situation. Something has caused it. It must be your sin. And so again, he encourages Job to earnestly seek God after he condemned Job's sons. It's almost like, hey, Job, remember what happened to your sons? If you don't watch it, the same thing might happen to you unless you earnestly seek God. But, but yet he holds out before Job. He says, if you were pure and upright, surely now he would awake for you. C come on, Job, all you have to do is repent and get right with God, and then everything would be okay. And then listen to this. this is a very fascinating verse, verse 7. Look at this carefully. Uh, no, let's start at verse 6. If you were pure and upright, surely now he would awake for you and prosper your rightful habitation. Though your beginning was small, let your, let your latter end would increase abundantly. You, you see what he's saying here? Hey, Job, listen, things are bad now, but if you'll just turn to God, he'll make everything right. He'll restore, he'll bring things back, you know, to use a phrase from a later prophet. He'll restore the years that the locust has eaten, right? He'll bless you, he'll just smile his face upon you. You know, sunny days are ahead if you'll just turn to God. And let me say this, was Bildad wrong or right in that? Well, I would say he was both wrong and right. He was wrong in that he assumed that because Job was not presently in a state of prosperity and abundance, then it proved that Job had not made supplication and that he was not pure and upright. You see, he's just trying to prove to Job, listen, I can prove that you're not right with God because if you were right with God, you wouldn't be in this kind of situation. So in that way, he was wrong applying that principle to Job. But you know what? In another way, he was right. 
Look at it there, verse 7 again. Though your beginning was small, yet your latter end would increase abundantly. Now let me ask you right there. Did that end up being true about Job? Yes, it does. I don't want to spoil the end of the book for you, but at the end of the book, God blesses Job with more and with deeper blessings than he ever had before. And I find it interesting that Bildad is almost like an unknowing prophet in this circumstance. He's putting forth the word of the Lord, but he doesn't even quite know it. He did increase at his latter end. His beginning was small. He was brought down to poverty right here. But yet at the very end of it, he's blessed beyond recognition. In this sense, we might say that Bildad was an unknowing prophet. But again, I don't think his heart was right because he's trying to apply wisdom to Job that is true in one context, but it's not true to Job's situation. Continue on now at verse 8. He says, For inquire, please, of the former age, and consider the things discovered by their fathers. For we were born yesterday and know nothing, because our days on earth are a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and utter words from the heart? So in other words, Bildad is asking Job to consult the wisdom of the ages and to consider what the wisdom of the ages has to teach and to tell Job. So listen, Job, we all know these things. You know, just think back the wisdom that we all know. And then he says, listen, Job, we were born yesterday. Did you see that in verse 9? Listen, Job, uh, we can understand why you were foolish. We're all kind of foolish. We were just born yesterday. But think back to the wisdom of the ancients and you'll begin to understand what you should understand. Now again, was Bildad wrong or right? In a sense, he was right in that the wisdom of the ancients would largely agree with him, right? Job, this is why you're in trouble. It's because you've sinned. Get right with God and that's a solution to your problem. But Bildad was wrong Because this was not the answer to Job's problem. Listen, to be sure, we can learn from the past. But the past is not an absolute teacher for us. I like the way that Warren Wearsby put it. He said the past should be a rudder, like on a ship, the thing that steers the ship. He says that the past should be like a rudder to guide us into the future, and it should not be like an anchor that holds us back. The, the, the fact that somebody said something a long time ago is no guarantee that it's right, especially no guarantee that it's right in a particular situation. And so continuing on here now at verse 11. Can the papyrus grow up without a marsh? Can the reeds flourish without water? While it is yet green and not cut down, it withers before any other plant. So are the paths of all those who forget God. And the hope of the hypocrite shall perish, whose confidence shall be cut off, and whose trust is as a spider's web. He leans on his house, but it does not stand. He holds it fast, but it does not endure. He grows green in the sun, and his branches spread out in the garden. His roots wrap around the rock heap, and look for a place in the stones. If he is destroyed from his place, then it will deny him, saying, I have not seen you. Bildad here is using the illustration of the papyrus growing up in a marsh. Think of a marsh or a swampy area and reeds growing up. You know, reeds, sort of like bamboo or papyrus sort of thing. He used this idea of growing papyrus to illustrate two things. First of all, it shows the principle of cause and effect. Can the reeds flourish without water? Right? Cause and effect. You give water to the reeds, they're going to grow. Secondly, though... The reeds are fragile growth that wither before any other plant 
as he says right there in verse uh, 12. You see, and what he's trying to say here is that the reeds are like the hypocrite. Right there, you see the point very clearly, clearly there in verse uh, 13. So are the paths of all those who forget God and the hope of the hypocrite shall perish. Now he says that the reeds or the papyrus are like the hypocrite or the one who makes a mere show of faith without a true trust in God. And you know, again, in some ways I would say, Bildad, you're correct. Like the reed, hypocrites grow up quickly. Don't hypocrites grow up quickly in what they do? And reeds can go pretty quickly. Like the reed, Hypocrites are hollow and without substance. Like the reed, hypocrites are easily bent. Like the reed, hypocrites can lower their head in false humility. A reed can lower its head when the wind blows, but it's a false humility. And like the reed, hypocrites bear no fruit. You'll never find a nice juicy apple hanging from a reed. It doesn't happen that way. And so again, Bildad is right in these sort of analysis. But notice this. Here is the place where he's wrong. He says it very plainly here in verse 13. So are the paths of all those who forget God. His idea is simple. Even as the papyrus quickly withers and dies, so will be all those who turn their back on God. He might prosper for a time, but ultimately He's going to come to ruin. And Bildad is here using very powerful pictures from the natural world and saying, this explains your situation, Job. Now he's going to continue on in verse 19 and talk about the promised blessing that would come to Job if he would only turn back to the Lord. He says, behold, verse 19, this is the joy of his way. And out of the earth, others will grow. Behold, God will not cast away the blameless, nor will he uphold the evildoers, Yet he will fill your mouth with laughing and your lips with rejoicing. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame and the dwelling place of the wicked will come to nothing. You see, Bildad's message was blunt. It was less diplomatic than Eliphaz. Eliphaz spoke with some dignity and sort of in a diplomatic way. Not Bildad. His basic message was the same as Eliphaz's, but it was just presented in a more straightforward way. Job you can once again come to the place of joy and laughing if you will turn to God again. You see, basically, Bildad and Eliphaz before him, they have a very simple theology. Everything can be explained by saying that there are two kind of people in the world. There's the blameless, and then there's the secretly wicked. Right? In verse 20, he describes the blameless. In verse 20, he says, Behold, God will not cast away the blameless. Job, you're cast away. You must not be blameless. The second category of person is described as by as the secretly wicked. Look at verse 13. It says, So are the hope of the hypocrite shall perish. The secretly wicked. He's saying, Job, you must be secretly wicked. You're not one of the blameless. The catastrophe in your life proves it. So again, you see very plainly here, it's not hard to understand Bildad's sort of approach to this whole situation, right? But now we look at Job's response. 
And Job's response takes up chapters 9 and 10. And it's sort of typical because while there is an intermingling of the two, what we find here in chapters 9 and 10 is very interesting. Chapter 9 is Job basically talking to his friends. Chapter 10, Job is basically talking to God. And I want to say that's not an absolute division because there's some intermingling there. But there's a sort of a focus in chapter 9 and a focus in chapter 10. So we're ready for Job's response to Bildad. Do you have the picture in your mind here? These guys all sitting around in a circle and Bildad speaking with these blunt, straightforward words. Job, we all know how this works. We all know the wisdom from people long ago. Blameless people don't suffer like you do. Hypocrites do. We love you, Job. It's just time for you to repent. Now, here's Job's response, starting here at chapter 9, verse 1. Then Job answered and said, Truly, I know it is so. But how can a man be righteous before God? If one wished to contend with him, he would not answer him one time out of a thousand. Now look, just stop right there. First, he says, truly, I know it is so. You're right, Bildad. I understand your point. You've made your illustration well. The papyrus or reed thing. Okay, nice word picture. Way to go, Bildad. But here he says, here, here's my problem. How can a man be made righteous before God? See, obviously, Job suffered more than normal people. Yet, who could rightly accuse Job of sinning more than normal people? Now look, here, look. Job was not ever there to claim that he was sinless. We'll see this as we go on. Job was not claiming to be sinless. Never. He never makes that claim in the book. But yet... If Bildad's equation is correct, then extraordinary suffering belongs to extraordinary sinners, right? He's saying, I'm not one of those. If Job was not righteous before God, then how could any man be righteous before God? How can a man be righteous before God, as he says right there in verse 2? Now listen, it's very important for us to just spend a moment on this and consider this. Because the Bible speaks of human righteousness in two different senses. The first sense is that a man can be righteous, or a woman, of course, in a relative sense, right? That means in relation to other people, where one person can properly be considered as righteous among men, as Noah. Genesis chapter 7, verse 1, says that Noah was a righteous man. Job, chapter 1, verse 1, says that Job was a blameless man. Again, you can find several examples of this where, relatively speaking, you've got a group of a thousand people and one person or a few people stand out in the group. That's a righteous man. That's a righteous woman. So we can speak of righteousness on a relative scale, right? Do we understand that? But now, secondly, there's sort of, the other aspect is that a man can be declared righteous in a legal sense before God, declared and considered righteous by God through faith. Now that is only the property of humanity through faith in Jesus Christ. It's one thing to be righteous in a relative way among other human beings. It's another thing to be righteous before the law of God. You know, I think it's very uh, interesting. Um, you, You can... Uh, drive around in California on the freeways there. And it's very interesting because the California freeways have a speed limit. Most of the time, it's about 65 miles an hour. Sometimes it's 55 miles an hour, but let's just say 65 miles an hour. 
And the one universal truth about the California freeways is that virtually nobody drives 65 miles an hour. Everybody's driving about 80 miles an hour, if not faster. Everybody. Okay? Now, you can say, I'm going to be a really good driver and just drive 67 miles an hour. It's just two over. And you would be going way slower than everybody else. Cars would be passing you on both sides, woo, 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 all over the place. You know, you'd be there, you'd be going, people would be probably honking their horns at you, right? Because you're holding up traffic, because you're almost obeying the speed limit. So there you are driving 67 miles an hour. And then you're thinking, man, I'm righteous. Look at this. Look at all these people sinning far worse than I am. And I'm so holy here. And you know what? On a relative basis, you are righteous, aren't you? Right? You, you are much close to perfect, closer to perfectly obeying the law than anybody else on that freeway. We applaud you for your righteousness. But then you're driving along and you see red lights in your rear view mirror. And you see the highway patrolman behind you pointing at you. You, get off. And so you get off the freeway and he goes, I'm going to write you a ticket for speeding. He said, but officer, I saw my speed on my father very carefully. I was going 67 miles an hour. Everybody else was going 85 or 90. He goes, that's two miles an hour over the speed limit. He said, but it's not fair. Because on a relative basis, I was the best driver out there. But he says, but you still broke the law. And what would be interesting is if you went to the judge and tried to contest that ticket in court, oh, it would be wonderful to see what the judge would say. He'd say, well, Your Honor, I was only two miles an hour over the speed limit. And he would pound down his gavel and say, guilty. That's all there is to it. Now, this sort of illustrates the idea of a difference between relative righteousness and legal righteousness. Legal righteousness is ours alone by faith in Jesus Christ. But yet, when Job says here, how can a man be righteous before God? He's asking just on this relative basis. Job's question here concerns that first aspect of righteousness, though it's also relevant to the other aspect of righteousness. But Job primarily wanted to know, listen, if I have not been righteous enough to escape the judgment of God, then who can be? But yet, in an ultimate sense, Job's question is the most important question in the world. How can a man find God's approval? How can a person be considered righteous and not guilty before God? Now, I'm not going to get into the answer to that tonight. The answer to that, go, go to the book of Romans, right? Go to the New Testament. That's where it really spells out to you how a man can be made righteous before God. But I'm just distinguishing between the two different kinds of righteousness. Anyway, we come back. Let's start again here at verse 2. He says, Truly I know it is so, but how can a man be righteous before God? If one wished to contend with him, he would not answer him one time out of a thousand. Verse 3. You see, Job understood that man could not debate with God or demand answers from him. Listen, God doesn't owe you answers, but here Job is just now beginning to express what is his greatest frustration, what will become his greatest frustration throughout all this. I find it very interesting that through all these speeches of Job that he actually complains very little about his financial losses or his family losses or his physical pain or all the other crises. He actually complains very little about that. What seems to bother Job most of all is that God won't answer him. What seems to bother Job most of all is like, listen, I've been through a lot of crises in my life. Nothing as bad as this before, but I've been through crises before. And every time God was there to speak to me about it. 
Every time God was there to comfort me. And now I call out to the heavens and it seems like there's iron in heaven and I can't break through. You hear those words from If one wished to contend with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. This is how Job feels. And so he goes on to describe the great might, the great strength of God. Picking up here at verse 4, he says, God is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has hardened himself against him and prospered. He removes the mountains and they do not know when he overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. He commands the sun and it does not rise. He seals off the stars. He alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He made the bear, Orion, and the Pleiades and the chamber of the south. He does great things past finding out. Yes, wonders without number. If he goes by me, I do not see him. If he moves past, I do not perceive him. If he takes away, who can hinder him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? God will not withdraw his anger. The allies of the proud lie prostrate beneath him. Again, here Job is praising the great might of God. He says he created the worlds and he put the sun and the stars in the sky. But let's face it. Job recognized he could testify of the might and the power of God. But the might of God was no comfort to him. Yes, you're a great, mighty God. You can spin out the stars with the flick of your finger. But all that just makes him say, God is so big and so mighty that he probably doesn't care about me and my situation. It made him feel that God was more distant than ever. And Job understands. He understands the equation. He says there, who hardened himself against him and prospered? Right? I understand how this works. Nobody can harden themselves against God and prosper. It just won't happen. If you resist God, he will resist you. Job understood that equation. And as he thought about these great works of God, he says, listen, he does great things past finding out, wonders without number. Again, it made Job just feel small. It made him feel that God was either too great to notice him. Right? Did you notice that? If he goes by, I do not see him, right there in verse 11. Or it made him feel that God was too great to care or help Job. God will not withdraw his anger. It was like this. It was as if Job cried out, Why is God so hard to figure out? He's great, he's mighty, but that's no comfort to me right now. God, why are you so hard to figure out? You know what I find is interesting about this? Contrast the the thinking of Job with the thinking of his three friends. Job's friends did not think that God was hard to figure out, right? Job's friends thought that God was easy to figure out. Job, duh, the answer's simple. You're in sin. If you just repent, God will bless you again. They thought it was all very simple, but yet Job knew. He knew because of the fact of it and because of his conscience, Job knew that this was not true. But at least knowing his own heart and his own integrity, Job knew that God was not so simple to figure out. And there he goes here, the allies of the proud lie prostrate beneath him. And then Job wonders how he can uh, answer such a mighty God. Look at it here in verse 14. He says, how then can I answer him and choose my words to reason with him? For though I were righteous, I could not answer him. I would beg mercy of my judge. 
If I called and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not allow me to catch my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it is a matter of strength, indeed, he is strong. And of justice, who will appoint my day in court? Though I were righteous, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I were blameless, it would prove me perverse. Do you sense the the overwhelming feeling of helplessness that Job is experiencing here, right? What can I do? There's absolutely nothing I can do. Even if I could get God to listen to me, I wouldn't believe it. He's crushing me. He's killing me. He won't allow me to catch my breath. Job's problem was very clear. He understood that God was righteous and mighty, but what he could not understand is how God would use that righteousness and that might to help Job. God seemed distant. He seemed impersonal to Job. And by the way, shouldn't we say that this is how God seems to many people who suffer? You know, again, Job was a man who knew what it was like to live with God and to walk with God. This was not a man who was a stranger to the things of God. Yet now he feels separated from Job. I want you to think that in almost an infinitely smaller way, Job experienced what Jesus experienced on the cross. There's Jesus, a man who was in perfect fellowship with God the Father his whole life, and at the cross that was separated, right? So what did he cry out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now listen, it's a very interesting question. Did God the Father forsake Jesus on the cross? Well, the answer to that question is the classic theological answer. Yes and no. Yes, he forsook him in the sense that he judged the guilt and the shame of sin of Jesus of our sin in Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross. God the Father treated Jesus as if he were a guilty sinner. So in that sense, he was forsaken. But in another sense, he was not forsaken at all. Because that act of bearing our sin was the most holy, righteous work that had ever happened. At that moment, I love how Paul puts it. He says, God the Father was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. You could say that at that moment, there was never a time when the Father and the Son were more close. But yet Jesus didn't feel like it. Jesus felt utterly forsaken. Now again, in an almost infinitely smaller way, can you see that this is what Job is experiencing? This man who who has walked closely with God for so long in his life now feels utterly separated from God. And he can't figure it out. And this is what burdens him so greatly. You see, if Job were to proclaim his own righteousness, I like what he says there in verse 20. If I, though I were righteous, my own mouth would condemn me. Job's saying, I know I'm a sinner. If I were to proclaim my own righteousness, my own words would be evidence of my pride and arrogance. It's not about me proclaiming my own righteousness. Job knows that. Because though I were righteous, though I were blameless, it would prove me perverse. Job gave a very eloquent voice to his exasperation. He felt as though there was nothing he could do to please God or come into his favor again. Again, please, nobody should misunderstand me. I'm not trying to say that, that Job suffered like Jesus suffered. But there is some analogy there. Do you remember when, when Paul speaks in the New Testament about the fellowship of his sufferings? You know, it's almost like, not almost, I think it is. God was bringing Job 
into the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ before Christ ever was on the earth. And this is what he was experiencing. Now, as sort of a wonderful anticipation of this, look at verse 21. I'm blameless, yet I do not know myself. I despise my life. It is all one thing. Therefore, I say, he destroys the blameless and the wicked. If the scourge slays suddenly, he laughs at the plight of the innocent. The earth is given into the hands of the wicked. He covers the face of its judges. If it's not he, then who else could it be? Again, Job here, he's just, he's venting. He's ranting. He's raging. He he believed that he was blameless. Yet at the same time, he says, I don't know myself. I love that line in verse 21. I'm blameless. Yet I don't know myself. Job's saying, Maybe there was some sin. Maybe I did deserve this. You know, he started to go a little bit crazy here in his head, but not crazy enough. I despise my life. It's all one thing. Therefore, I say, and this is what Job says about God, he destroys the blameless and the wicked. You see, the whole idea of Job's friends was that God's moral government in the world meant that he curses the wicked and he blesses the obedient. Therefore, Job, if you're cursed, you must be one of the wicked. That's their whole moral framework. Their whole understanding. You know what Job's here saying? He goes, listen, the wicked and the blameless, he treats them just alike. I, I can just imagine Job's friends going, oh, when he says, oh, how could you say that? But listen, can you understand how Job feels here? By the way, it gets even worse there. Did you see what he said there? Where is it here? Is in verse uh, 23. If the scourge slays suddenly, he laughs at the plight of the innocent. Who is he talking about? God. Job felt that not only was God distant and silent, but he was also having sport at the expense of godly sufferers like Job. Now listen, Job, how can you feel this way? Again, this is the agony of a man tortured with what you might call the fellowship of the sufferings of Job. This this deepening spiritual crisis that we see happening in Job. It's kind of funny as we read the book here and as we hear Job pour out his heart, it's almost like we see a train wreck happening right in front of ours. Job, you're you're starting to freak out. You're starting to say things about God that you probably shouldn't say. Let let me give you a little bit of a preview here. Before we get to the end of the book of Job, you're going to see Job had to repent about what he said about God. He did. And and so we see in this, we went, whoa, Job. But at the same time, I mean, our hearts go out to the man, don't they? But, But this developing spiritual crisis in Job has to do with his misunderstanding of God. You see, I like what Tozer said. He said, the most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think of God. And Job's conception of God was becoming, and we understand it perfectly, but it was becoming twisted by his own experience and imagination. You see, this God of Job's imagination was morally indifferent and he laughed at suffering people. He blocks the administration of justice in the universe. Now we know that's not an accurate representation of God, but at the same time, we go, Job, we understand this. 
And again, he's saying, listen, it's very powerful there in verse 20. If it's not he, who else could it be? Of course it's God doing all this. His hand is behind it all. Going on here now, verse 25, he goes, Now my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away, they see no good. They pass by swift ships like an eagle swooping on its prey. If I say I'll forget my complaint, I'll put off my sad face and wear a smile. I'm afraid of all my sufferings. I know that you will not hold me innocent. If I am condemned, then why do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow water and cleanse my hands with soap, yet you will plunge me into the pit and my own clothes will abhor me. Job feels that his life is spinning and running completely out of control. Did you hear what he said there? He said, listen, my my days are swifter than a runner. Things are going by faster and faster, he said in verse 25. He said, listen, my life is passing by so quickly that I'm going to die before this whole matter gets redeemed or resolved before God. And then he cries out, and you can almost feel the pain in this complaint when he says, I know that you will not hold me innocent there in verse 28. He already felt like he had been tried and condemned by God and that it would do him no good to cleanse himself before God. God, if I cleanse myself with snow water, you would just plunge me down into the pit again. And so it's not fair what you're doing to me, God. You'll plunge me into the pit. But now, this is what's great. Could we just agree? Not a good place, Job. You're not in a very healthy place right here, right? It doesn't look good for you. If you're counseling Job right now and he's just giving you this outburst, you're kind of going, okay, you know, what do we do now? Um, I don't know where to go with this. But at this moment, and we'll find this characteristic throughout the book of Job, at these very, very dark moments, a light will begin to flash. I mean, it'll just come to Job. Something of inspiration. Let's just look at it here. Verse 32 he's complaining, right? For he's not a man as I am, that I may answer him, and that we should go to court together, nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me, and do not let tread of him terrify me. Then I would speak and not fear him, but it is not so with me. And you get this in verse 32? He's not a man that I may answer him. Job here is feeling the distance between himself and God. God, you're not treating me fair, but there's no way I can address the problem. There's a gap between you and me, God, and that gap is unbridgeable. And so what does he despair of? He says, nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. I see the distance between us, God, but I see, verse 33, that there is no mediator between us. And isn't it beautiful? What, what does Joe see? He says a mediator who can stand between him and God and lay his hand on God and lay his hand on Job. Isn't this a flash of wonderful light of Job seeing that he needs the Messiah? He needs Jesus Christ. Job needed someone to sort out the differences between him and God. Now his prior belief system did not do that. His experience did not do it. The counsel of his friends did not do it. But recognizing his great need, Job cried out for a mediator between himself and God. And let me say, this cry was a good thing. 
It showed Job looking outside of himself for answers. Paul, in Romans chapter 7, where he's despairing of his own sinfulness and the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do do those things. What am I going to do? Who? And then he finally, at the end of the chapter, what does he say? Who shall deliver me from this body of sin and death? He says, the answer's not in me. I need someone to save me. That's what Job's saying right here. Don't you agree that we have a great promise of a mediator that Job knew nothing about? We know this. We read this, and it's almost hard for us to pick up Job's desperation and that he didn't know anything about this mediator. We know, but he didn't. He goes, oh, Job, we have that great mediator. And then he said, if I had that mediator, do you see what he said? Then I would speak and not fear him, but it is not so with me. If I had that meteor, it says in verse 35, then I would be able to speak freely with God, but I can't do it. Now, before we go on to the much shorter chapter 10 and finish that up, I just want you to think about something here. This is one of the chapters in Job that gives us a flash of Jesus Christ, right? We go this, and, and again, living on this side of the new covenant, our hearts beat a little bit. Job's longing for a mediator, someone to lay his hand on God and on him. And we know, oh, that's Jesus, Job. Look forward to Jesus. Jesus is the answer. You know what I find fascinating about this chapter, Job chapter 9? You see, there are many thoughts in this passage that connect it with Jesus. If you were to go back into chapter 9, say, for example, uh, to verse 8, he alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Who, who walks on water? Well, that's Jesus, isn't it? We read that God made the bear, Orion, and the Pleiades, right? We read that in verse 9. And those stars announce the birth of Jesus Christ. We read there that God does great things past finding out. Yes, wonders without number. We read that in verse 10. Well, Jesus did uncountable miracles as great things, right? Didn't Jesus do such great miracles? We read that God moves past and I do not perceive him. He says it right there in verse 11. What well, Jesus could move through an angry crowd as if he were invisible. Do you remember that occasion from John chapter 8, verse 59? We read here that no one can say to God, what are you doing? It says right there in verse 12. And in the life of Jesus, it would come to pass that no one would dare to ask him any more questions. We, we read here that God will not withdraw his anger. That's in verse 13. And we're not surprised, therefore, that sometimes Jesus showed anger. And then when we read here that it's said of God that the allies of the proud lie prostrate beneath him. Right there in verse 13. We also understand how evil spirits fell prostrate at the feet of Jesus. Isn't it surprising? When we read a chapter like this that is very dark, we see flashes of Jesus throughout the whole thing. And it reminds us of something, doesn't it? That when this man Job is with Jesus in the fellowship of his sufferings, it doesn't surprise us that Jesus finds a way to insert himself in the text, just to show himself, to feature himself. Now, over to chapter 10. We'll conclude tonight with chapter 10. Here is what Job would say to God, right? Before chapter 9, he was mainly speaking to his friends. Now he's going to speak more to God himself. Here we go. Verse 1. My soul 
loathes my life. I will give free course to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Show me why you contend with me. Does it seem good to you that you should oppress, that you should despise the work of your hands and smile on the counsel of the wicked? Do you have eyes of flesh? Or do you see as a man sees? Are your days like the days of a mortal man? Are your years like the days of a mighty man? That you should seek for my iniquity and search out my sin? Although you know that I am not wicked and there is no one who can deliver me from your hand. Isn't this powerful? You know, I I just need to pause here. When's the last time you, or I for that matter, have prayed with this kind of passion? I look at the way that Job talked to God, and I think of the way that I talk to God, and it's convicting. Now listen, I, I would hate to think that it would take the kind of crisis in my life that happened in Job's life to get me to talk to God with this kind of passion. But uh, don't you say it, and I hope this doesn't come off wrong, okay? I hope you understand what I'm saying. Don't you think God loved it that Job was interacting with him so passionately? Even though God kept behind a curtain and would not reveal himself to Job, and Job still felt that he was beating against an iron ceiling and could not get to God all the while of that. You know God's pleased. So we see the passion in it. Of course, he said it right there in verse 1, right? (laughs) I'll give free course to my complaint. Well, he certainly did. And then he cries out to God, Do not condemn me. Show me why you contend with me. There in verse 2. It's as if Job says to God, Hey God, put your cards out on the table. Make your case against me. You show me why I deserve this disaster in my life. You see, Job is, is just kind of had it with his friends. Here's the problem. Job's friends felt as if they knew why this thing had come upon Job. Job says, I don't know. They say, we do know. Job says, I don't know. It goes back and forth, building up to the point where Job is so frustrated that God won't come and settle the matter that Job essentially demands that God solve this. God, you have to do this. And that's where God comes down at the end of the book. And uh, well, we'll have to wait for that. I don't want to spoil the end, but I mean, it's pretty amazing So he says, you show me, Lord, why do you contend with me? Does it seem good to you that you should oppress, that you should despise the work of your hands? Boy, man, this is is tough stuff, isn't it? It's like Job's crying out of God. Does this make you happy? Does it put a great big smile on your face to see me so tortured? I'm the work of your hands and you're treating me this way. And then he says, wow, I mean, again, it's tough stuff, but we give Job just an A plus for being real before God. He says right here, verse four, do you have eyes of flesh or do you see as a man sees? Do you have any sympathy for me at all, God? You see, Job clearly knew that God was not limited in his vision as humans were. Yet by the facts that Job had seen and experienced, it seems that God couldn't see what was going on or that he saw him with the same hollow and superficial vision that the friends did. And then he says this. This is a wonderful statement that he says right there in verse 7. Although you know that I'm not wicked. God, you know it. 
My friends don't know it. But you know that I'm not a wicked man. Again, he goes on here, verse 8. Your hands have made me and fashioned me in intricate unity, yet you would destroy me. Remember, I pray that you've made me like clay. Will you turn me into the dust again? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese, clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews? You have granted me life and favor and your care has preserved my spirit. Very interesting here. Job was a smart scientist. He knew that God was the author of creation and specifically that God was the creator of mankind. Job had the same understanding as the psalmist who would later say, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made and marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. He says, listen, I know that I came forth from the dust. Are you going to send me back to the dust again? It's really beautiful. I got to say, even though Job is in the midst of despair, even though he's crying out, venting all his agony before God, he, he's speaking in a very beautiful way, if I could say that. He, he uses powerful pictures to describe how he feels he relates to God. First of all, in, in verse 9, he's like a vessel of clay shaped like a potter. In verse 10, he's like a cheese being poured out like a cheesemaker. And in verse 11, he's like a garment being woven by a weaver. Very interesting, this terminology that he uses. It's very interesting, this whole idea of the man being poured out like a cheese. It's, it's a very unusual and interesting thing that Job puts in there. Yet he says there, notice this, you've made me so beautiful. I'm like, uh, you've made me so amazingly. I'm like a piece of pottery made. I'm like a cheese made. I'm like a, a garment being woven. But at the same time, did you see what he said there? He says, yet you would destroy me. Man, that's heavy, isn't it? Verse 8 says that. Job knew that God created him. Now he felt like God wanted to destroy him. Now what's very interesting, is Job didn't know, right? He can't see behind the curtain, right? Job didn't know that God strictly forbade Satan to destroy Job, right? <laughs> if Job only knew, Job, no way am I going to allow you to be destroyed. Job, I'm on your side. Listen, I know it's hard for you to believe because of what you're going through, but, but friend, brother, I am on your side and I will not allow you to be destroyed. Now, we can't blame Job for not feeling that. But at the same time, we look at it from the heavenly perspective. We just want to say, Job, understand it. We can sympathize with what Job felt and understand that he could not know us, but we also know the truth and the heavenly scene behind the earthly scene. He says here very beautifully, you've granted me life and favor and your care has preserved my spirit. It, it, but thinking about this, you might think Job is finding comfort in this. Oh, God, you granted me life and favor and your care has preserved my spirit. Isn't that a comfort to Job's soul? No, because now he feels like, listen, why has this same God who created me and preserved me, why is he now abandoning me? Because I know for sure that he's not preserving me now. I know for sure that he's throwing me to the wolves. This is what made it so difficult for Job in his situation. And so he cries out with an agonized question here, starting here at verse 13. And these things you have hidden in your heart, 
I know that this was with you. If I sin, then you mark me, and I will not and will not accept acquit me, excuse me. If I sin, then you will mark me and will not acquit me of my iniquity. If I am wicked, woe to me. Even if I'm righteous, I cannot lift up my head. I am full of disgrace. See my misery. If my head is exalted, you hunt me like a fierce lion. And again, you show yourself awesome against me. You renew your witness against me and increase your indignation toward me. Changes and war are ever with me. You see, listen. There in verse 13, Job is touching on the core of the problem that stirs up inside of him. He knows that God knows all the causes and answers for Job's condition. These things you've hidden in your heart. Lord, if there's one thing I know, you know what's going on. What I don't know is why you won't explain it to me. Again, it's easy for us to read the book of Job with that hidden assumption that Job himself knew what was happening in the heavenly realms as recorded in the first two chapters of the book. But as readers of the book of Job, we have to resist that temptation to think that Job knew what was going on and instead empathize with Job, knowing that it was just as difficult for him to comprehend the workings of the spiritual realm as it is difficult for us to comprehend it. If I am wicked, woe to me, he says. Job's friends insisted that the disasters of his life, that they all came upon him because he was wicked. And he goes, listen, if that's the way it is, well then woe to me. But then he says here in such powerful words here, you hunt me as the fierce lion. This is in verse 16. And you show yourself awesome against me. I guess we could explain it like this. Job felt as though God was no help to him at all in his present distress. You know, God, you used to help me. Where are you now? Instead, he felt as though he were prey for God, who came against him like a fierce lion. God, you're you're not my friend. You're like a lion attacking me. And he says, changes and war are ever with me. The idea there, it's almost a word picture in the Hebrew, is of uh, armies and troops, wave after wave after wave, coming against Job and attacking him. That's how he feels from God. Now here in this last section that we're going to look at, verses 18 through 22, we see Job really depressed. I have to say, these two chapters sort of give us a good characteristic of later chapters that we're going to see in the book of Job. We see Job in agony, crying out, And then we'll see just like this flash of light, right? His call for a a mediator. Oh, that there was a mediator. Someone to lay lay his hand on God and on me. And this is, it's like a very, very dark night. And then a flare shoots up and lights up the darkness of the night. You go, wow, it's beautiful. And then the flare is gone and it's dark again. Let me tell you, I don't want to hide it from you. Here at the end of chapter 10, it's dark. Verse 18. Why then have you brought me out of the womb? Oh, that I had perished and no eye had seen me. I would have been as though I had not been. I would have been carried from the womb to the grave. Are not my days few? Cease, leave me alone that I may take a little comfort before I go to the place from which I shall not return, to the land of darkness and the shadow of death, a land as dark as darkness itself, as the shadow of death without any order, where even the light is like darkness. 
Whoa. See what Job says here? God, just leave me alone. You see, the only presence of God that Job feels is not comforting. The only presence of God that he feels makes him feel worse, not better. Now, again, it's important to say that Job was not suicidal. It's true, his wish that he had never been born is something like a wish for suicide. But, but yet, it's not a suicidal thought. Job felt these almost suicidal thoughts because he could not see any sense in his suffering. Now, you know what's funny about this? Again, Job's friends saw sense in the suffering, didn't they? Oh, Job, your suffering makes perfect sense to us, right? You're in sin. That's why you have to repent. But it didn't make Job, it didn't make any sense to Job because Job knew they were wrong. You see, again, even though Job couldn't see it, it was all real, what was happening behind in the heavenly realm. It would have completely changed Job's situation if he could have had faith in the invisible or at least comfort himself in the understanding that there were invisible dynamics in the heavenly places that made sense of the situation. To say, God, I know that there's a curtain between heaven and earth. I know that I can't see what's going on in the heavenly realm, but I'm going to trust that even though I can't see it, that, that what's going on behind that curtain makes sense of what I'm going through now. Job could have said that. And, and at a later time, he will come to that place. But here, we must admit, it ends in the very same depression that we saw before in previous chapters, where he says, let me die and go to the land of darkness. There's not this optimistic, you know, hope of the resurrection and all of this business in the future. No, not in this chapter of Job. We're going to see another chapter of Job. Job's going to cut. He's going to shoot up a few more flares, as we're going to see. And they're going to shine brilliantly in the midst of the darkness. But as we come to the end of chapter 10, we come here into darkness. Job's just saying, I just wish I could die, because when I die, then it's just all over, and I don't have to deal with anything anymore. It wasn't true. He thought that the present day was like day, and he thought that the life after this was just like night. He didn't understand those things, because as we said before, life and immortality were brought to light by Jesus Christ. Again, that's 2 Timothy 1.10. We understand that, but Job didn't have that. He didn't have that light that was brought to him by Jesus Christ. No, not yet. So all he can do is shoot up an occasional flare. Maybe that's the image that we should leave ourselves with tonight. You know, in the midst of our sufferings, in the midst of our difficulties, we see two things. First of all, we can appreciate, it is possible for us to appreciate in a way that it was impossible for Job to appreciate, that we are participating in the fellowship of the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Now, Job was doing it. He just didn't understand it. We can both do it and understand it with much greater clarity. Secondly, Job was able, by the grace of God, to occasionally shoot up a flare to illumine a dark night. We can have the sun shining full in its strength. Not, not that it'll take away our pains or misery, but it'll shine its light of God's illumination upon. So, Father, that's our prayer tonight, that you would help us, Lord, to put our sufferings, Lord, and we don't mean at all to compare our sufferings to Job's, Lord. 
But our sufferings are nevertheless our sufferings, and we bring them before you, and we pray that you would give us the wisdom, the patience, the courage to receive them as the fellowship of the sufferings of Jesus Christ, and what's more than that, Lord, to understand them in the full New Testament sense. Lord, so, so much greater and brighter than Job could have ever understood. Father, let this help us also to have a great compassion towards those who are suffering. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.